Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the middle of Mark's gospel, Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them, who do the people say that I am? Now that is a very important question. We must be clear on who Jesus is. But as we find out when we read that passage, the people can be wrong or at least mistaken about Jesus. Some say that he is Elijah and some say that he is one of the prophets. In other words, our opinion about Jesus or indeed any other person's opinion about Jesus isn't actually that important. It doesn't tell us who Jesus is necessarily. But that's different with God. God tells us who Jesus is. God tells us what he has come to do. And his opinion, his verdict on Jesus is supremely important. And that's what we're going to be looking at in the next three weeks. Because at the baptism of Christ, at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, the heavens open and God himself declares that this is my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. That is what God has to say about Jesus. That is who God says Jesus is, that he is his son, the one he loves and the one in whom he is well pleased. Now I've got to pause just for a moment because as you read your version of the Bible, as you read the ESV, you'll notice that it doesn't quite say what I just said. So if I take from Mark chapter 1 verse 11, what we read is this. A voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with who, with you I am well pleased. So you might be a bit confused. Why are we splitting it up and why are we saying that Jesus is God's son and his beloved and not just his beloved son? Well, to answer that, we need to think a little bit about how adjectives work in the original language. We need to think a little bit about Greek. This is quite a simple point, but it is important. When we use adjectives in English, right, you could describe uh, a ball as being a red ball. Right? So the ball is the noun and the adjective red is the thing that comes before it. Right, So the red ball. But in Greek, you could describe the same ball using a different construction. Right, You could say the red ball or alternatively, you could put it this way. The ball, the red. Right, So you could say the ball, the red. And that would mean the same thing as the red ball. Right, Just a different way of putting it. And so what you have in chapter 1, verse 11, and it's the same with Matthew and it's the same with Luke, is that when uh, God says, you are my beloved son, the construction actually reads, the son, the beloved. And so what we're saying here is actually what God is saying is he's saying three distinct things, or he's saying two distinct things there, that Jesus is his son, and he is also the beloved. And these things are distinguished because they tell us slightly different things about Jesus and they pull on different threads from the Old Testament. And so that's what we're going to be looking at, what it means for Jesus to be the son, 
for Jesus to be the beloved and for Jesus to be the one in whom the Father is well pleased. Right? And so today, specifically, what we're going to look at is that Jesus is God's son. And to do that, to look at what it means to be God's son, we're going to look at three different things. Number one, what it means to be a son. Two, what it means for Jesus to be God's son. And three, what that means for us. Right. So one, what it means to be a son. Two, what it means for Jesus to be God's son. And three, what that means for us. So what does it mean to be a son? Now, for most of us in everyday life, a son just means ordinary biological generation, right? A father has a son. Uh, he begets uh, him from his body. So we can think about this even in the Bible, right? You have James and John, the disciples of Jesus, who are described as the sons of Zebedee, right? They are just begotten from Zebedee, their father. But also you see that the word son carries the connotation, therefore, of likeness, of, of similarity. As we notice in society that, that sons are like their fathers, so too in the Bible we get the same principle. So with Adam, Adam begets Seth in his image after his own likeness. Right? Adam doesn't beget pineapples, he doesn't beget cats, he doesn't beget dogs, he begets another human, and he begets a human in his likeness after his image. It's another sense of the word son. There is a likeness connotation. And for that reason, the language of sonship can also be used in a metaphorical sense. So, for example, going back to, to James and John again, Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. Well, it doesn't mean that they were children of thunder, but it would be a colloquial expression to say that they've got a bit of a temper that they're like thunder, that, that they carry the attributes, the characteristics of thunder. In the Old Testament, you see the, the same idea. You could describe someone as sons of worthlessness. It's just a way of saying that that person is worthless. Right? They carry the characteristics, the attributes of worthlessness. But it also carries another sense, a specific sense. It's not just biological and it's not just similarity. But as we look back into the Old Testament, the idea of sonship becomes more particular and it refers to a particular group of people and in the end to a particular person. So, for example, as the people of God, we could see that Adam is a son of God. We see that in Luke chapter 3. This is, you get the genealogy of the people of God, and, and at the end there is Adam, who is the son of God. He is he's God's people. And you see that with Israel in Exodus 4. How does God describe uh, the nation? They are his firstborn son. Right? For, for Israel to be God's son means that they have a special relationship with him. They are his people and he is their God. But as we push forward into the rest of the Old Testament, it doesn't just refer to, to all of God's people as a whole or even God's people within that whole individually. 
but it begins to refer to a particular person, to one person especially, and that is God's king. Now, as we read in our Old Testament passage in 2 Samuel 7, this is what we found. As God spoke to David and told him about his dynasty, we read this. So unlike Saul, whose, whose dynasty came to an end, who didn't have sons to sit on his throne, God says to David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will raise up your sons who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. This one, this son, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So what then do we learn from this? Well, firstly, we learn that David will have a son. He will have heirs who will sit on the throne of Israel, unlike Saul, who was before him. But much more importantly, we learn that David's sons will also be treated by God as though they are his sons. Have a look at verse 14 again. God says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That is, the Davidic king is treated as God's son. So we could say that Solomon was God's son, or Rehoboam was God's son, or any of the other kings of Israel were God's son. We see this elsewhere. For example, have a look at Psalm 2, which is the coronation psalm. Uh, Here in verse 6, as God appoints the king of Israel, verse 6, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. How does this king, how does the Davidic son respond? Verse 7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. In other words, the coronation of the king of Israel, the crowning of God's, of David's son, is the day in which he becomes God's son. Now you might think that's a bit odd, isn't it? Isn't that a strange way to talk about the king of Israel? Isn't that quite a high and exalted way of talking about a mere human, a king? Well, remember when we thought about the son earlier, part of the language of sonship is reflecting the characteristics, the qualities, the images of the father. So we know that God is supremely king over all creation, that he rules over all. And what is his rule like? Well, Psalm 9 gives us a good example. The Lord forever reigns on high. His throne for justice stands. He will judge the world in righteousness and with justice rule the lands. The Lord will be a hiding place for those who are oppressed and he will be a strong defence for those who are distressed. You see, God's rule is almost like, is almost unlike any other rule that we see. It is perfect in its concern for justice and righteousness and truth. And it is perfect in its desire to protect the weak and the meek 
and the lowly. And you see, the point is, is that the son of David, the king of Israel, is supposed to reflect God's qualities as a ruler. He is supposed to be a son in the sense that that he perfectly exhibits what God's rule is like. So, for example, have a look at Psalm 45. This makes it very clear. Psalm 45 is speaking of the Davidic king. And here we have in verse four, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. The Davidic king is supposed to be concerned to exercise truth and meekness and righteousness. And we see that again in verse six, your throne, O God, here speaking about the king, speaking about him as if he was God, this high and exalted person, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and you have hated wickedness. See, this is why the Davidic king is is called God's son, because he reigns like God. But actually, if we know anything about our Old Testament, we know that this didn't really last and it was never really exhibited with the kings of Israel. Solomon and Rehoboam and all the other sons of David, some were good and some were bad, but they never lived up to that standard. And in the end, that the kingdom of Israel was taken away into exile because of their sin and idolatry and wickedness. But when that happened, the promises that God made to David didn't stop. The promise of a son who would sit on his throne didn't end. And in fact, that promise became heightened and intensified, and it became focused upon one particular son, a unique son. And we begin to see that this unique son would not just be like God, but we get increasing hints that he himself would be God. Have a look at Isaiah 9, that famous passage which we read every Christmas. Here the context is the, is the exile, the people who walked in darkness and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. On them has the light shone. And what is that light? Verse six, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And of course, what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus is this son. At the beginning of Romans, Paul points out that that Jesus is, according to the flesh, the son of David. And as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, it is Hosanna, to the son of David, as the blind man outside Jericho says, have mercy upon me, son of David. It's pointing to this son of David, the true king of Israel who would come. But this son of David, this son of God, is not just the king of Israel, but Jesus is also 
the divine son, the one who is eternally by nature God's son. And so all of those kings of Israel who were supposed to reflect God in his rule were patterned supremely upon the eternal son of God. And in the fullness of time, those kings find their fulfillment in the son of God as he comes and is born into this world and is born as the king of Israel. When God says to Jesus, you are my son, he's not just saying that he is the Davidic king, but that he is the final Davidic king because he is the one who is by nature son, eternally the son of the father. And that is why Jesus can perfectly reflect God, because he is one with God in being and all of his attributes. Jesus is justice and righteousness and truth and wisdom. And so his rule will perfectly reflect all of those attributes. So that's what it means to be a son. That's what it means for Jesus to be the son. Now, what about us? Well, unlike Jesus, we are not sons by divine nature. Obviously, we are creatures. But Paul tells us that we are sons by adoption. Galatians 3 verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. If you are trusting in Christ today, if you are trusting in the one who is by divine nature son, then you are counted through faith in him as a son of God among all the number of the sons of God and with all of the rights and privileges of the sons of God. And that is an act of God's grace. No one can make themselves a son. You can't decide when you're born and no one can adopt or be, uh, can force their own adoption. It has to be the free act of the one who adopts. And this is what God has done for us. He has freely out of his love made us to be his sons through union with Christ. And that carries an obligation. As sons reflect their fathers, so also are we to reflect God. And I want to think about it in one particular way. In Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And the reason he says that is, is not because by making peace with other people, we will be made sons of God. But rather, as we are peacemakers amongst people, we reflect the character of the God who is himself a peacemaker. Now, how do we do that? What is the power for doing that? Because making peace, asking for forgiveness and being willing to forgive other people is so very difficult. But it all depends, I think, on how we relate to God. And this also reflects our understanding of sonship. I want you to think for a moment. How do you relate to God? How do you think about God? How do you pray to him? How do you conceive your relationship to him as being like? Is it more like a slave than it is a son? Is your relationship defined by fear instead of freedom? 
Do you think of God and just see the law and all of the demands and you have to tick them off? Otherwise, God will be angry with you and punish you. Or do you see the law as the reflection of his righteous character? And out of love, you desire to serve him and to make him known in all of his qualities. Do you come to church with a sense of imposter syndrome? You think, I've got to hide because actually I'm... I'm not like what I think the Bible tells me I should be like and what other people may think that I should be like. Are you afraid? Well, if we are truly sons of God, if we believe that in Christ we are counted as sons, then there is no need to be afraid of God. God loves us. He has made us his own beloved children. And it is this love that he has poured into our hearts through his spirit that is the power to obey him and to reflect him. When you think about being a peacemaker, when you have the person in the office that is so difficult to get along with, so difficult to make peace with, that there's constant conflict, when you think about that family member who is just a pain and they've wronged you in this serious way and you, you, you feel like you cannot forgive, but you know as a Christian that you have to forgive and, and you feel the weight of that because you know that in, in the... In the Lord's Prayer, it is, unless we forgive, then then we ourselves will not be forgiven. So you feel the burden, the demand to be a peacemaker. But if you're making peace through that motivation, then you're responding like a slave. You're not acting like a son. Instead, as those who are sons of God, as those in whom he has poured his Holy Spirit, then we will make peace with other people, not out of sense of burden and obligation, but because we know that we ourselves are loved by our Heavenly Father, that he has made peace with us, and that we desire to reflect his character from the heart by making peace with others. And the strength to do this does not come from within, But as Paul says in Galatians 4 verse 6, because we are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And for this reason, we are no longer a slave, but a son. You see, through the Holy Spirit, the the spirit that the father poured upon his son at the baptism to equip and enable his role as mediator, he has sent that same spirit into our hearts so that we who are not by nature sons would be conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, who is by nature son. And so therefore, let us pray as we know the father eternally loves the eternal son, and gave him his Holy Spirit to equip and enable him for his great mission of redeeming us. Let us also pray that our Father, our Father through adoption, will grant us more of his Spirit, that we may be conformed more and more into the image of his eternal Son, the Son who perfectly reflects this great and glorious Father. Let us pray. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that you sent your Son into this world uh, to redeem us 
to save us from our sin. And thank you that you sent your spirit to unite us to your son. Uh, and we pray that you would grant us uh, that we would be conformed more and more into his image and likeness. We pray that from our hearts we would be crying out to you, Abba, Father, and responding to you not as slaves, but as beloved sons. And we ask this in the name of your eternal Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.